is the story of all of us, right? It's the story of the human condition and a God who understands, who gets it, and is constantly inviting us into relationship with him in a different mm -hmm. way to live. So yeah. we're going to continue in that this morning. Let me pray for you, and we'll jump in. God, I do thank you for Matt and the gift of teaching that you have placed in him uh, for our benefit, for the building up of the church body. And so I pray this morning as he exercises his gift in obedience to you, um, God, that you would give us uh, open ears and open hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No one told me um, that it would be so fun to title sermons. <clears throat> Today is called War. What is it good for? Today we're going to answer that question, actually. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about this is that uh, my wife and I have a habit of watching the news, which I don't, I'm still debating on whether that's a good habit. Um, <clears throat> sometimes it's good. Sometimes it leaves me with a bunch of anxiety about the world, right? And so this week we were watching the news, and it just so happens that our kids were in the room. And the topic of Ukraine came on, right? And it hit me. I was like, this is the first time that my kids are hearing about war, and they have no idea what it is. And then this cycle of every war that, has, that I've seen take place, like, kind of ran through my head. I remember being in fourth grade um, and Desert Storm starting. I remember uh, where I was when Two Towers went down. And then... Um, Shortly after that, the war in Iraq started, and then Afghanistan, and now we're at Ukraine, and there's probably much more in that time frame, right? Um, and then before that, my dad was in Vietnam, and my great-grandfather was in World War II. You know, it's like, man, we're just in this cycle of killing each other all the time, you know? Can't be good. Uh, so today, we're going we're gonna to ask a couple questions of the text. Um, and one of them, uh, not the most important one, but war, what, what's the purpose of that? Um, today, when you leave this building, my expectation for you is to have an experience of God's freedom that you have not previously had. And you would experience a level of freedom beyond the current measure you've, you've experienced, okay? So today's teaching is gonna revolve around two primary questions, okay? How much would you pay for your own freedom? That's number one. Number two is, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Okay, with me? So, as we traverse the story of Judges chapter 3, I want you to consider those two questions. And then after that, after I get through the story, I'm going to come back and break down a few of those things about what our freedom costs, okay, and how we pay for it. So let's dive in. The book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. And right after that, 
Israel begins to move in and inhabit the land, the promised land that they've been searching out, waiting on with the Lord, right? And they go in and they begin to war against some of the nations. And by the time you get to chapter three, what happens is something drastically different than what God commanded them. Chapter three, five and six says, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters, they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So instead of coming in and going to war with all of the nations, they come in and they cozy up to the other nations, so much so that they begin to intermarry and then serve their gods. That's like taking somebody to prom and your prom date leaving with some scumbag, right? You're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I brought you to this place to like enjoy our time together and you want to leave with that guy? This is what the Old Testament prophets call whoring yourself out after other gods. It's pretty strong language, right? But that's exactly what they're doing. So instead of uh, coming in and being obedient towards the Lord, resting in the promises of God, they come in as disobedient people. Now what's a proper reaction to someone else leaving with your prom date is anger. I, I would say rage is appropriate at that point, you know? That's not how I planned that to go. So what does, in response to that? He's actually angry with his bride. God's reaction to their uh, intermarrying and serving other gods is that he sells them into slavery. Verse 8 says, He sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathim of Mesopotamia. And they lived under this oppression for eight years. Eight long years. And after eight years, they finally cried out to God, Will you save us? And he raises up a deliverer named Othniel. And Othniel goes to war against the king and sets them free, and they're free for 40 years. And then Othniel dies. And guess what happens? After the death of Othniel, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God raises up another king, King Eglon from Moab, who partners with the Amorites and the Amalekites to go and defeat Israel. It actually says that they took the city of Palms, which you know as Jericho, and they lived enslaved to Eglon, the Moabites, for 18 long years before they cried out, to God. Will you save us? And God raises up another deliverer named Ehud. And Ehud is a left-handed Benjaminite. 
And he is tasked with taking a tribute to Eglon. It's like, a, it's like a sacrifice, an offering of gold, of wealth that they take and deliver to this king, Eglon. And it says that Ehud crafted a sword 18 inches long, and he attached it to his right thigh. And he and his men gather the tribute and carry it off to Eglon. Deliver the tribute, and then they leave. And as, Eglon, or as Ehud is, is leaving uh, the Moabite land, something happens. Judges 3 verse 19 says, But he, Ehud, turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And so Ehud turns to the guys that he, he, uh, he took the tribute with and says, you guys go on home. I'm going to go deliver a message to the king. And so in the privacy of the cool roof chamber of Eglon, Ehud closes the door. They're all by themselves. And Ehud approaches the king. Says that he takes his sword and jams it into the belly of Eglon, who is a very fat man. That's what it says. So much so that the entire blade goes in all the way to the end of the sword, the hilt of the sword, and that his fat encompasses the entirety of the sword. And then something special happens uh, his bowels evacuate. That's like the best way I can put that. Uh, <clears throat> Ehud is now in the king's chamber with a dead king in a foreign land. He runs and he locks the door, escapes out the window, runs home, blows the trumpet, and calls Israel to war. They go off to war against the Moabites defeating 10,000 of the Moabites' best men. And then they lived in harmony for 80 years. Okay? Do you remember our two questions? How much are you willing to pay for your freedom? And how are you going to pay for it? The way that Ehud was making a payment was in the reverse. When he paid a tribute to the king, it was not for his freedom, but it was for his enslavement and Israel's enslavement to him, to the Moabites. So one way to ask the question is, how much would you pay for your freedom? Another way to ask the question is, how much are you paying for your sin? Have you considered the cost? Romans 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You understand that when you take a job, you don't expect to receive all of your payments once you're dead, right? 
you actually want your employer to pay you as you go, right? So this concept of death is not something waiting until the end, right? It's something that we are experiencing as we go. Adam and Eve stand at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And the serpent whispers into Adam and Eve's ear, saying, you won't surely die. And they eat of the tree. And what we think of death is that breath of life will leave their body. But you know from the story that they go on living, right? Romans 6, 19. For just as, you were prese- just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. When you partner with sin, when you are a slave to sin, you actually are creating more avenues for yourself to sin. So what is it costing you? Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. Is it costing you your savings? Maybe it's costing you your family, your health. Maybe even your reputation throughout town. See, the problem with uh, partnering with sin and the problem that Ehud had is that it is impossible to enthrone God and something else in your own heart, right? You can't keep doing that. God won't allow it. He will raise up something to defeat you, which is how the story goes. He raises up a king to come against the nation of Israel. So how much are you paying? How much is it costing you? The story actually gives you two ways out. The two ways in this story actually work in tandem together, but we're going to separate them and look at them as as two different entities. So how are you going to pay for it? One option is that you trust that there is a deliverer that will eventually be raised up in order to set you free, which both Othniel and Ehud are in this story. But you know that God has been raising up Deliverers since Genesis chapter 6. And he will continue to do so even after this story is over. But what makes these people deliverers? Noah is a deliverer. Abraham is a deliverer. Moses and now Othniel and Ehud. This is what Genesis 6 says about Noah. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God is raising someone up to propel the story forward because he's not done yet, right? So what's common about Ehud and Noah and Abraham is first that they found favor. Why do they find favor? I believe that's found in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to the crowds of his disciples. He says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, sorry, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? my question to you is, did Ehud sit down and count how many men he had back at the ranch before he went to war? Is that really what counting the cost is about? Is it about knowing that you're going to have victory before you get there? Abraham enters into the land of Canaan with his cousin Lot. And they grow to a size where they cannot any longer remain together. They must separate. And so Abraham looks at Lot and says, hey, uh, you pick which one you want to go to. You want to go to the green pastures or to the desert land? I'll let you choose first. And of course, Lot looks at the green land and says, I'll choose that one, right? And goes down to the land. And shortly after that, uh, he realized that he's encamped next to Sodom, who is quickly going to be raided by multiple other nations. And the end of that is that these other nations take Sodomites and Lot and his family captive. And one of the people runs back and tells Abram, hey, look, this is what's happening. And Abraham actually goes to war against these other people and gets Lot back. On his way back home, he runs into Melchizedek, who offers him a blessing, and Abraham does in in response. And the king of Sodom actually sees this and wants to get down on, on what's happening. And this is what he says, Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Abram says to this king, I want nothing to do with you taking part in what God is doing in my life, in what God has already promised me. I will not partner with you in any way, no format. So what's the secret message that Ehud whispers into Eglon's ears as he's driving the sword in? Doesn't say, but we can speculate that it's something like, there's only one king, maker of heaven and earth, and I will serve him and him alone. A deliverer is someone who has put their entire dependence upon a promise from God. And Jesus Christ is exactly the same way. He says, I only do what I see my father doing, completely obedient, even unto death. But what happens when you are a believer? You have entrusted yourself to God. I hope that everyone in here has. But you still experience sin. You still experience the after effects, the consequences of sin. What is our reaction to that? Yes, I trust in you, Lord. But I still have this problem. And I know it's a problem. What do we do? We go to war, right? We, we fight, we join accountability groups, we put apps on our phone, we, we do X, Y, and Z in order to try and make ourselves good enough, right? We somehow get to the point where we've, we've confessed that we believe and trust in Christ and yet, I, I need to do this other part for myself. So what's the purpose of war? What is it good for? Here's the contradiction. Othniel and Ehud both take up a sword and go to war. But I told you that there are deliverers before him, right? What's Noah's weapon of choice? A hammer. He's a boat builder, like some of you. He didn't go to war, and yet he's still a deliverer. He's a type of deliverer, right? Actually, he's a boat builder and a, a circus ringleader, right? And then, yeah, I just told you a story about Abram, about how he went to war. But for the most part, he's a wanderer in a land that he doesn't know, right? He's not slaying leaders of other nations as a, as a full-time job, right? He's mostly lying to kings about his wife not being his wife. 
And then there's Moses. Oh, yeah, he kills that guy in the beginning. Uh, but then he runs away to the way. He's actually a wilderness expert, right? His weapon of choice is a staff. And he hits rocks with it. So what's the purpose of war? Is the purpose of war for us to defeat our enemy? Judges 3, verse 2. God lays out the plan. It was only in order that the generations of this people of Israel might know war to teach those who had not known it before. Verse 4. They, meaning the, the nations that he just listed in verse 3, were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which the commandment, the command, he commanded the fathers by the hand of Moses. The purpose of war, what is it good for? Absolutely Repentance. Not nothing. Absolutely repentance. And you find it ironic that Eglon and two other nations defeated Israel by capturing Jericho? How did the Lord defeat Jericho for the Israelites? They didn't use weapons, they used their feet and trumpets, right? God is not wanting you to become some warrior against the sin that inhabits your life. God doesn't need mighty men of valor to defeat what is wrong with this world. What he wants is hearers, men who will follow him, men who will lay down their life at all costs. What's the purpose of war? To bring about repentance and his people. To see if they will follow him at all costs. So how much is it costing you is the question that you can only answer. How are you gonna pay for it? There's two options. You can try on your own, or you can entrust it to the Lord. You can repent. You can take what is enthroned in your heart and toss it out and put him there. It's a little easier said than done, right? So how do you repent? How do you repent? The answer within this story is that you craft a sword. See, before he took the tribute to the king, he, he makes his own 18-inch sword and straps it to his leg. And what he's doing in that moment is essentially killing himself, right? I'm going to circumvent enemy lines, send away everyone that could help me defeat the king, and go in alone. When he closes the door behind himself and he slides that knife into the belly of Eglon, 
I don't think he's thinking he's going to make it out. Right? There isn't necessarily a hope. So Ehud crafts a weapon. How do you now craft a weapon? Not all of us are blacksmiths, right? So that's not the option. It's already been crafted for you. Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Just like Adam and Eve weren't able to. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 17, the last piece of the armor. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work how do I how do I effectively repent against the sin that is currently challenging the throne of my heart it is to come to him and to make this sword a part of your being, to attach it to your thigh, to come to him with no hope of having both of these things enthroned in my life. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, what we're called to is actually to lay down the old self, to put off the old self and to put on the new created in his image and that's the plan it's not that you would stand at the justification of Christ right not that alone but that you would on a trajectory look more and more like him as time passes so it's not just an initial repentance of saying yes I need you God it's a repentance of daily dependence upon him I need you to defeat this enemy, and now this enemy, and now this enemy. And I don't say that to be condemning to you. I say that because of my goal today, that you would experience a level of freedom that you have not before now. This is the way forward. It's through him. It's through his word. So the invitation is... I'm either going to war against the things that cause me problems myself in my own pride, or I'm going to humbly return 
to him and say, will you help me? This is actually far easier for new believers than it is for old believers, uh, older believers. The experience that I've had in my own life is uh, right, uh, right when I became a Christian, uh, there were kids in the room. So uh, I had a, a, a ranch style house and, and down the hallway was, the, uh, was a hall closet. And uh, at the end of that closet, at the very top of the closet was uh, a collection, a collection. And one night I'm walking down the hallway and I got to the door of this closet and I thought, these two things don't go together, Jesus and this collection. And I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. It was just get the collection out of the house, right? It's got to go. This, this God that I've met is certainly better than, than any of this can offer, right? And so like that, it was like being delivered from all of that. It's just wiped out of my life. Supernatural. So we're going to sing a song, and you guys are going to, uh, I'm going to invite you to do just as the Israelites did in their captivity, to cry out to the Lord. And during that time, what I, what I want you to do is either publicly or in your heart with the Lord, uh, confess. This is the thing that is, is contending for the throne in my heart where God alone can sit. So if I'm asking you to do it, I got to do it first. It's only fair, right? The thing that contends for the throne in my heart more than anything else is uh, ease, a sense of peace. I've actually said that multiple times leading up to today. On this stage, like I, I really do want peace. And what I mean by that is my own ease, a lack of conflict in my life. And the way that that is expressed is, is like coming home and like my kids don't bother me. Man, can I just like take it easy for a little while? I'd like to not deal with things, you know? And the other way of that is, is comfort through my, my own use of food, right? And so hear me. I've heard many people tell me, oh man, you know, it's fine to eat a couple extra cookies. It's, it's not when the Lord is convicting you, right? It's actually sinful. I don't know who talks about gluttony anymore, especially not in America, right? It's just not, it's okay. If this is my sword, if this is what is bringing me freedom, then it isn't okay. Because this says that gluttony leads to death. And that's a cost that I don't actually want to pay. I actually don't want to know the total cost of that, right? So we're going to go into worship. And this is your chance to cry out to the Lord, to have a level of freedom that you do not currently know. Father, I pray that your spirit would lead us 
that everyone in this room would know that you have not come to condemn us, but to set us free. To give us a life that is more abundant than we could ever imagine. I pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would eradicate anything that is on the throne instead of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.